0: Hello Mage fans, this is Mage the Podcast, the podcast that works hard towards ascension, so you don't have to. I'm your host Adam Simpson, I'm joined again by Terry Robinson, and we are giving you another episode of the Tomes of Magic series. Today we're going to talk about Guide to the Traditions, and you know, after the last recording, Terry was coming to me and saying, you know, we've been doing so many light and fluffy books, I want something substantial, I want something worthy of my talents. And I said, Terry, you are in luck. Next up, we've got Guide to the Traditions. This book is 281 pages it is worthy of your talents so Terry how you doing
1: I am fine. This book is technically known as a chunker. One of the <laughs> stats that I started keeping was how many words, because the revised books just felt longer. Like, 100 pages of revised felt way longer than 100 pages of 2nd edition. And it is, because there's way less art, and the font got smaller.
0: <laughs> but You are um,
1: right. This book has about 192,000 words. For reference, the revised core book is 225,000 words, And previous largest supplement, I think, that we've talked about was Guide to the Technocracy at 153,000 words. So if you take Guide to the Technocracy and add to it the Mage Storyteller's Companion or Tales of Magic Dark Adventure, you Almost have Guide to the Traditions. So yeah, this is a little bit shorter than a uh, a core rulebook. And this was the largest non-core rulebook that White Wolf published until they produced Patolis for what was then, I guess, 3rd edition D&D. Sometimes I hear them pronounce it Tolus, and they're like, man,
0: uh, that book, that book. I dropped it on my foot. I'm in crutches <laughs> now. Yep, does ag <laughs> <egg> damage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... guide to the traditions had nine authors seven contributors it was put out in 2001 and uh, we told you how many pages how many words it is it is a substantial book Terry, why don't
1: you get us started? I will. It opens with a prologue, which is a cross-tradition group that is trying to get something done. We meet a bunch of people, we get a bunch of personalities, which are then never revisited for reasons I don't fully understand, where it's like, hey, we're going to introduce you to a whole bunch of characters. Have you gotten used to them? Well, you're never going to see them again. Deal. They are (laughs) members who have arranged a break-in. They use their magical powers to uh, Mission Impossible or A-team their way through somebody's house to steal some stuff, which they then give to a highly incredulous syndicate member who's like, why are you giving me this? And we're like, Because we want you to deal with this guy. And they're like, what's in it for you? And they're like, he's a bad guy. It's going to improve the moral quality of society. And it's like, I don't understand you. And you're like, well, yeah, this is revised. And it gives us the idea that uh, the traditions are in a weird place. The technocracy has slowed down. It even makes mention in a long-winded sentence of up until a few years ago, you would have been trying to shoot me and so on. But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. A pretty good example of the uh, type of uh, stories that uh, Revised Edition specializes in we have an introduction that just tells us what the book is we, we get a, a quick mood the idea is that of contention and construction what it's like currently to be within traditions as well as suggestions that there's still momentum to the activities of the council which was kind of a surprise to me because one of the ideas I had gotten in Revised so far is like the council is gone but here it suggests that the traditions are still moving and cooperating with each other and it just hasn't found like a place yet and people are scrambling to uh, fill roles in the hierarchy the theme they list is Hope Amid the Ruins. There's been kind of a reset. This is something that we went over in The Bitter Road. This is something we went over in the core rulebook. But if there's a theme to take from Revised, it's that the Nifondi are on their heels. The Marauders don't seem to be as active. The technocracy is uh, focusing internally and the traditions have a lot of breathing room. Chapter one, Heritage. This is a blissfully short chapter which tries to set out what the stakes are and what the arrangement of uh, the current traditions are kind of the role of the traditions in the technocracy have switched over time the technocracy started with the idea that they wanted to empower the masses and the traditions believe that they needed to protect them from the outside forces and accumulate power to themselves but now in modern times that role has changed Um, the traditions in their own way represent change because they have been put aside for a new order They are stubborn, they are left behind, and they feel that they should be on top. And they feel that in this modern era, maybe there is place to do that. The downside though, is the traditions again, have lost the communication with their masters. People have been getting less picky about their magical education. On the upside, they're no longer fettered by the constraints of hierarchy. And members are joining to get something. And it presents the idea that the traditions are broken down into kind of political thought groups that each wants something different it represents this in terms of what chronicles can you run. One of the focuses in Revised is what kind of game can you actually run? And the initial ones that they present, which kind of become the frame for the rest of the book is, do you want to build something new? Do you want to tear everything down? Do you want to reform what's already there? Do you want to research the storm and the aftermath of the Avatar storm? Do you want to take the fight to the technocracy? Or do you want to be a herald? The last one kind of like stuck out as the As the odd person there, but the war between the tech with the technocracy is a trade-off of risk versus wonder. The technocracy believed that we should get rid of wonder in an effort to get rid of risk. In modern times, maybe they have gone too far. The traditionalists historically believed that risk was worth it for wonder, but they make mention of the idea of the modern mystic who thinks that you can maximize both. And this book tries to bring to the table uh, a few new dominant paradigms, such as the modern shamanic practice, as well as the techno-mage, creating the techno-mystic or the techno-shaman. It introduces a lot of useful terms to me because one of the things that makes a world feel lived in is when there are several terms for the same thing like if you've ever watched or read the walking dead uh, different communities have different terms for the zombies and it both suggests that the areas have all dealt with the same thing but also that they are separated so if we get multiple terms for quintessence or tass and refer to it as as juice or something like that or multiple terms for paradox i think that makes the world feel more lived in I saw
0: a really interesting take on the traditions, or Council of Nine as a whole. Uh, Classic Mage, the first two editions of Mage, had the traditions preserving wisdom from past ages that changing times really had not invalidated. Revised Edition insists that the traditions are living in the past and outdated, so I'm not Sure, I'm fully on board with that uh, way of looking at them. The jargon section you mentioned, I didn't like it so much. I I found a lot of dated and even a few cringeworthy jargon items in there, so it's not something that I would like to use in in my chronicles. What what I thought was odd was this chapter tries to justify the existence of the traditions, whereas I I already like them. I don't feel a need to justify them. I just want to use them in my games, so that struck me as a bit odd, but... That sums up my thoughts for chapter one.
1: Chapter two is entitled Mysticism and gives us an interesting story of awakening where a church leader reads the mind of a confessor during some sort of confessional session. And it talks about how suddenly going from just the feeling that there is a God to what you believe to be uncanny proof that there is completely shook the person's view of the world. That awakening is the moment where things feel realer, and suddenly knowing there was a god made this person be washed over with shame. And that awakening is the point where you see the world as malleable. And this was almost a non sequitur, it kind of felt like there was some extra writing that was left over from another book. Nonetheless, I think it was good just because we don't have a lot of examples of awakening in a game notionally about awakening it also talks about how once you awaken you are now apart. you experience reality in a different way you have a different experience of the world around you you see everything is malleable and the opening section does a good job of reminding you that magic is eerie and sets you apart that Backgrounds like Avatar, Dream, and Past Life really change how your character experiences the world. And another through line in this book is how do we make the things on our character sheet come alive? The rest of the chapter is a whole bunch of sections just kind of going through the basics of Mage. There's a section on Paradox, for instance, where it talks about how Paradox is a responsibility and it sets up the scenario where a guy's like you made me drink and the guy's like I didn't make you do anything I just said if you didn't slam three shots I wasn't going to talk to you I didn't make you do anything and the guy's like I don't understand why you're I can't the table salt shaker and you're like okay got it yeah this guy's drunk but (laughs) he's more or less saying that paradox is the responsibility you take on because you don't have to do magic that magic is the shortcut it gives the story of a character being forced into a corner to break a personal code but if they had been uh, clever they could have sidestepped it and the guy says well you could have turned the alcohol into water I said you had to drink what was in it I didn't say you had to get drunk and the guy's like hey buddy that's not fair also, where are my keys? It talks about the different approaches to paradox, that so the technocracy has taken a systematic approach to it. And I like they introduce or reintroduce the idea that technocrats that invoke paradox get punished by their bosses. And the traditionalists call it a, an example of hubris.
0: I noticed here that they say that uh, paradox conforms to the casters, the, the victim's paradigm. And I, th- I thought that was interesting. That that was something new for me. The the first two editions of Mage I don't remember seeing anything
1: like that. That was an interesting idea for storytellers to, to work with, if that uh, appeals to them. They also mentioned mechanically... It is a check on characters using unbridled magic to solve everything. And I always thought that was ridiculous because I'm like, of course, m- characters wouldn't use magic to solve everything. And then in our Discord, discord.me slash the podcast, someone's like, my characters used magic because they didn't want to get up to answer the door when a pizza arrived. And I'm like, oh, we run very different games. Wow. The group was being attacked by a giant monitor lizard that had been summoned by a marauder. And uh, one of the characters had like lost an arm and is like, is it okay if I use vulgar magic now? And everyone's like, yes. Yes, it is. Now is that time. (laughs) So uh... (laughs) then we get a, a section on tradition tools. And it mentions that focus and power mages and it suggests that focuses have special properties that are intrinsic to them but if you don't know what they are you can't use them and one of the examples they give is the idea that a cigarette lighter if you don't know that it create a small fire by rotating that little wheel at the top and pushing the button you may see it as just a small mallet and this is one of the I think, deeper philosophical questions that Revised brings up, where it kind of blurs the line of how much of magic is truly coming from inside of the mage, and how much of it is out there in the world, and the mage is just kind of tapping into it. And uh, at a critical point, the, the line between the two is arbitrary, but it introduces the idea of consensual truth and absolute truth, that consensual truths are perceived to be absolute truths, but from a different perspective, that may not be the case, I thought this was an interesting question and The way I took this is in the game of Mage, the actual truths are what are on the character sheet. Like your truer truths are your character concept, your nature, your demeanor, and your dots, where the consensual truth is what is being come up with in the game. I don't know if that is what it was intended, but as I was reading through it, I'm like, this feels like kind of a meta commentary. In the sphere section, we get an amazing point that I really liked where it was like, yeah, the idea of a 10th sphere is dumb because we picked a nine arbitrarily. And then we get a good old section on, on paradigm and what this actually means. It introduces a whole bunch of ideas of how characters view their own. It brings up the idea of having a surface shallow, strong, or deep understanding of things. And overall, what it really wants to do is make it so that your character's relationship to their magic builds a character. Two people can otherwise make all the same selections, but just their interpretation of what magic is can create two very different and interesting characters. And it gives you a framework. It recommends starting with a sphere and then maybe another sphere to come up with nuance, figure out how it ties to your essence, come up with a few interesting twists, and then figure out how your style uh, changes over time. It just—it was a little bit jarring to me, who's used to M20 at this point, looking at this, and I'm like, not quite there yet uh it it still kind of has the supremacy of spheres influenced by your paradigm as opposed to kind of the the other way around the last big section is something called twisted traditions and the idea here is they want to create a lot of space to say hey we have presented the tradition so far and the subgroups Between each of these traditions, there is something else, and it talks about the very real concerns that groups have, that the elders believe that if you borrow something from another tradition, we may dilute what we have, that if we keep doing that, we may just wind up like the technocracy. Traditions tend to advance in their magical practice by borrowing elements that are geographically close or magically close, or by an exceptional mage doing research. And this answer is a key question I have in the game of, is what a hermetic does now different fundamentally from what a hermetic did 500 years ago? And the answer in some ways is kind of yes, that there is such thing as hermetic advancement, that in some way hermetic magic is getting better at the same time the consensus is shifting so to me those two forces kind of cancel out but it wouldn't surprise me then that if a hermetic were to go back 500 years they would be a better mage than a hermetic with equivalent arite, maybe just because magic has in some way advanced that is not an important point but to me that is one of those things that does the mage equivalent of keeping me up at night
0: so that's why the time sphere doesn't allow you to travel back in time.
1: Among other things, I think that's a, that's a reasonable <laughs> interpretation. But (laughs) uh, it talks about failed attempts at creating new paradigms, which I really liked, where they're like, uh, often people try and do this deliberately, uh, but it rarely goes beyond one cabal or one person. There's a lot of inertia. And then it goes over two large sections, as we said before. It wants to introduce a lot of information about shamanic magic and a lot about uh, technocratic magic. It gives us a whole bunch of groups. And when I think groups, I think Adam Simpson. Adam, can you tell us about some of those groups?
0: Okay, well here in chapter two we talk about sub Subtraditions sub are groups that have a new paradigm or a new spin on an old one. They are new groups with little influence. Given time, they could grow and refine their ideas until they become a full separate mage faction. Or your players might show up at their headquarters and bring down the whole show. <laughs> First off, we have... The Order of Sophia. Celestial choruser Alexandra Martin used dream speaker spirit techniques and made contact with a spirit of divine knowledge. She holds public events to make her discoveries available to mages and sleepers. The order is growing in popularity and may soon attract unwanted attention. The Fellowship of Dee. A hermetic and dream speaker have joined to recreate the 17th century partnership of John Dee and Edward Kelly on a larger scale. Partnerships are encouraged between one Hermetic and one Dream Speaker. The Fellowship has little support or understanding from the two established traditions. They summon powerful spirits that may be their undoing. The Spirit Alliance, a cooperation between Akashic Dream Speaker and Verbena Mages, that is establishing communities in isolated wild areas where new paradigms can be established. They have long-term plans and ignore accusations of hiding from the world. The colonies seem to be attracting unstable sleepers. Techno-shamans, a modern take on animism. High-tech objects house more complex and powerful spirits. Objects created by humans hold spirits that are easier to relate to than things in nature. Techno-shamans thrive in urban settings. They seek to awaken the spirits of man-made things and ally with them. Some are forging acquaintances with werewolves. Some say the techno-shamans have a hard time understanding how harmful some urban spirits are. Unity of Thought. Cultists of Ecstasy and Sons of Ether working together to experiment with drugs and other techniques to expand consciousness and learn about avatars. They currently focus on increasing intelligence. The Cult of Ecstasy is watching them closely to determine if they need to intervene. Uh, house Thig. This was mentioned before, but we get some new information on them here. This is a newer house of the Order of Hermes. These mages pursue hermetic magic, but use modern foci and symbols. Although they use computers and other modern tools, they are more of a cover for hermetic magic that reduces paradox and the notice of sleepers. When tradition techno gather, House they would like to be involved, but is usually excluded as they are seen as not true techno-magicians. Although recruiting many young members, their position within the Order of Hermes is unstable. The Linguists, a group of hermetics and virtual adepts working together to employ ancient esoteric and computer languages along with advanced mathematics to either create or discover the ultimate magical language. They have created unique programming languages, as well as gained insight into previously indecipherable ancient languages, but their attempts to break technocracy code languages may bring danger to their door. The Luxmists. This is a faction within the Euthanatos. They make use of modern technology. These Euthanatoi focus on the probability side of entropy rather than decay and favor subtle uses of magic. Their results are... Evoking interest and concern from the other traditions, the locksmith's ability to use medical tools to more safely create a near-death experience have gained them much popularity in the euthanatos now that visiting the low umbra is impossible. The extreme confidence of this group may soon them into trouble. The Disciples of the One Point, pantheist astronomers of the Celestial Chorus who have gathered at Mount Wilson Observatory near Los Angeles using correspondence and time through powerful telescopes. They want to contact the universal god which they believe is easier to communicate with at the beginning and end of the universe. They plan to build a permanent location on the dark side of the moon and try to increase public support for space exploration, a small group lacking influence who may soon upset the void engineers. Uh, Finally we have the Order of Saint Albertus, Members of this group are Hermetics and Choristers who found common cause and evidence of past cooperation. Started two years ago in Mexico City, it is expanding. Inspired by the nightly orders of the past, they take up arms to aid sleepers in need. And I, for one, thought that we really could use a group called the Disciples of the One Job, because that way, in every game session after they screw up, the players can say to each other, <laughs> you had
1: one job. But that rounds us out for the factions. I think one of the interesting things was when they were talking about techno shamans was that one they made mention of the fact that the sons of ether and the virtual adepts are kind of thrown off by this because some of the techno shamans just use off the shelf stuff and they're like ooh i wouldn't be caught dead with using a dell and the idea that modern things are more close to humanity because at the same time i'm like but also nature spirits are something we've been dealing with for ever Uh, And we've kind of figured those out, but new spirits of plastic and glass and metal, maybe not so much. So that is something where I could really see that going either way. What did you think about the chapter otherwise?
0: Well, this chapter got deep into Paradigm, and uh, one of my criticisms against the first two editions of Mage was they mentioned Paradigm, but they never really tried to explain it. They just said, hey, it's there, and it's a big part of Mage, and let's talk about something else so for revised edition this is not the first time that they have uh, dealt directly with the topic of paradigm but it is uh, so far the best and certainly the most thorough so there was just a lot of food for thought uh, for me here a number of things uh, jumped out at me Um, at on page 56 there's a sidebar on paradigm saying um, this is supposed to help you have more fun games it's not supposed to be something that's divisive and i totally agree having a quote-unquote deep understanding of paradigm doesn't make you an elite mage fan. Paradigm should never be used to prove you're the smartest person in the room. Also, on page 57, there is a quote that just floored me. I'm going to repeat it because it was a big deal for me. Discussions revolve around the minor points of differing metaphysical beliefs and can grow quite heated. Nobody enjoys being told that they're fundamentally wrong, particularly when they know they're right. These types of discussions tend to be the metaphysical equivalents of real world arguments involving abortion, religion, gun control, or race relations. End quote. Wow, talking about magic and the mysteries of the universe is like arguments on abortion, race relations, etc. Dang, that's depressing. That takes the wind right out of my sails. That's not the world of mage I showed to my players. But moving on, I agree with Terry that, although it's really nice to have this discussion of paradigm, there were parts of it where, you know, they don't quite have a lock on it yet. There were parts that were clumsy. I thought it was really interesting that they have a paragraph on page 58 talking about a deep paradigm and it seems to indicate the view on individual paradigms. Uh, one of the things that I think any discussion of paradigms should deal with is group paradigms versus individual paradigms. The first two editions of the game were seemed to lean a lot more towards group, And Mage 20 and Mage Revise seems to lean a lot more towards individual. And this was not specifically brought up, but uh, that that paragraph did seem to give me an idea of uh, their thoughts on things. They need to discuss paradigm entrenchment, which is a term I made up. I'm guilty, I'm sorry. But paradigm entrenchment is basically the idea that as you increase in erite as you learn more about the nine spheres and are able to use them better do you become more entrenched in your paradigm do you get more dogmatic about it more convinced that it it is correct or do you start letting go of it the first two editions of mage treat paradigm as uh, like training wheels the higher your erite goes the less attached you are to your paradigm until finally you, you just don't deal with it anymore. It's, it's no longer a thing that is useful to you. I really don't like the idea of surface, shallow, strong, or deep uh, model of paradigm. Uh, I just find it to be too artificial, and um, in my experience, it leads to elitism uh, really fast, because the players look at the four and they say, well, which one's best? Well, that's my mage's understanding, because my mage is smart, and so I, I just haven't found it to be very useful at the gaming table. The notion of sphere association as a guide to paradigm for each player i thought that was way too narrowly focused uh the nine spheres of magic it is known that mages came up with this in the renaissance because they thought it would be a useful model and they've kept it for hundreds of years so it must have been a useful model but The point is, it was invented to try to understand a very difficult and messy thing that is magic. And so telling a player, uh, pick a sphere, your paradigm is built around that. I I just didn't find that to be helpful. Uh, I really liked in the first uh, Virtual Adept Tradition book, they talked about the idea of information and how it could be an additional sphere of magic and how... Adepts like to approach the whole notion of magic through this notion of information, knowable data. If you take the one paradigm sphere association idea, then great ideas like that just get swept off the table. So I I don't like to see that happen. They also have uh, paradigm styles of rigid versus closed versus open versus liberal, and of course... Uh, you know, rigid is supposed to be the worst one, liberal is supposed to be the best one. Uh, again, I, I don't find this very helpful. My, my players ask which is the best. They latch on to the best one because they want to be smart and... Uh also the guide to paradigm construction I found it to be needlessly complicated and even restrictive so it's not something I want to lay in front of my players page 65 talked about twisting traditions and in there they said that uh, it, they want to prevent cross-pollination of paradigms and try and keep paradigms pure and I thought I don't agree with that one of the things I really enjoyed about the early edition of mage early editions of mage was when the different traditions, of the Council of Nine, got together and talked to each other. Their ideas rubbed off on each other, and I I thought that was so much fun, and so trying to have a pure paradigm does not appeal to me. I thought it was interesting how sub-traditions end up being like soft factions or unofficial factions. Like, officially, on paper, you're a member of the Order of Hermes, but in your own thinking, in in your own heart, you're a member of the linguists, which, uh, you know, is is built up with uh, members from mostly virtual adepts in the Order of Hermes, so... Subtraditions are kind of like your heart's affiliation rather than your official affiliation.
1: I agree that the 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 shallow deep surface thing didn't make a lot of sense to me. I do like the paradigm types of, of of rigid through through liberal because I think that that answers a basic question that comes up a lot in mage of what does my mage think about everyone else doing magic? It doesn't need to be rigidly answered. But I think it is useful within the game to figure out what each character's answer to that is. And it goes back to partially whether or not you think Mage is a satire, which I argue in revised it no longer is, of more than one of the authors have indicated that part of what makes Mage social commentary is that everyone recognizes that everyone is doing the exact same thing, but no one's willing to talk about it. And I'm like, "Mm, no, that does not come across anywhere in the books in many cases. So I think answering the question of what do you think of other people magicking is useful, even if we don't need this. kind of uh, rigid framework. And as uh, Adam points out, there's there's a lot in the 1E core rulebook that uh, (laughs) over the past 25 years, I feel like sometimes we've only still hit the surface of it. Chapter three is history and factions for days. And I'm a big fan of a big old timeline. And normally you figure I'd talk about this for ages. But you know what? They don't give dates for many of these things. So this is an exception. Oh, that's terrible. Exactly. This is Terry. an exception to my Terry Will Read All Timelines rule. <laughs> there is a the single sidebar in Mage, I think, that we've encountered so far designed to create the most arguments is on page 90 where it's like the first tradition, where it's like, yeah, the Akashics are are the oldest mic drop. And then it lists formal <laughs> dates for the for all of the other traditions. And I'm like uh, hmm, I don't know. So, yeah,
0: and, I was the same way. I saw like, this is the date that this tradition started. And there was like two or three of them. I was like, yeah, I, I don't know about that.
1: Yeah. The entire thing is super vague with dates and so on, except for these where it's like, no, here's the specific date. Also, this is the guy's house that was done in. Here's a picture of everyone waving at you. I'm like, wow, they're really, they're really on point for this. All of them to me are basically surprising. But the two that kind of stuck in my craw the most are they're like, yeah, the celestial chorus were for were formed in 1452, where like... the Every Celestial Chorus tradition book is like, Mentu Hutep gathered everyone together in Egypt sometime a long time ago, and they're all like, we should work together as a group. Yes. We should come up with a name for ourselves that involves music. Yes. And apparently that didn't actually count as founding a tradition when they all agree on what they should do, what their magic does, what their role in the world is, and they gather together in a single place from across the globe. (laughs) Apparently that doesn't effing count. The other one that kind of threw me off was The Virtual Adepts, 1823. I'm like, wow, we should throw a party for their two-century anniversary. The rest of the chapter... It starts with the idea that early on, magic alone was easier because no one disagreed with you, that with time, the Hermetics and the Celestial Chorus became the biggest groups of practicing mages, and that their rivalry left space for the Order of Reason, and that after the rise of the Order of Reason, mages had to join together, which is why they list the formation date for so many traditions as being so late. People may have had similar ideas and similar practices, but not until after they're like, crap order of reason did they actually decide to band together one of the things this chapter does is it continues the idea where the difference between mystical and technocratic mages has always been there and here they're like yep Hatshepsut gathered mages to form the reed of judy and the who became the first text of mancers and the cupbearers of set who were the first mystics been there since the beginning and you're like uh um because one of the recurring (laughs) themes in the world of darkness is we can't have nice things and these fights we've just been waging for a while and uh that's why everything is broken now from there i'm just kind of going to list cases where it felt like this was a change from what we had gotten before rather than just recounting everything we get a new interpretation of orem which we just talked about in lost paths where it was this week-long siege of this Jin overrun city that resulted in the loss of many mages and that the brave last stand of the first patini archmage to convert to islam occurred there the blood of the the martyrs filled a small pool and it doesn't really tell you what actually happened it just cuts forward to there's no oasis there now i'm like what there's there's some missing pieces there. It gives us more information about the formation of the web of faith, which, again, twists subtly from uh, a previous book where before it was like, yeah, these are the Roman aqueducts. And now they're like, yeah, now we're going to move it around with books and stuff. And uh, one of the things it tries to do is say, hey, more than one group was involved in everything. So for the Web of Faith, for instance, it mentions that this is something the Chorus, the Cultists of Ecstasy, the Dream Speakers, the Order of Hermes, the Ali Bittini, and the Taftani have known, as well as the uh, muktashaf al-Nur, which was a Middle Eastern or, I guess you could say, across the Maghreb and the Levant group of technomancers which were denied membership at the convention of the white tower they were on good terms with the germans uh the german technocracy as they call it on the eve of world war ii uh they pushed behind ataturk to reform turkey and they have largely merged with the technocracy except for a small band that i don't think we ever really get any information on but that was cool one of the recurring things that we get across the section are historical groups and traditions interacting with them. It would take far too much time, in my opinion, to go through these, so I won't. So it does things like, hey, the Vikings, they were a thing. This is all the traditions that were involved with it. Hey, the Palatine Knights that worked for Charlemagne, they were a thing. Here's all the things that went through there. Um, they do kind of make an interesting note that uh, a lot of Etherites are Palatine Knights. And I thought that was super cool. I
0: counted 33 new mage groups introduced for the first time in just this chapter and uh, normally I like to talk about new groups and factions but 33 groups that's kind of a lot so I I typed up notes Um, I've got a couple of sentences for all of them introducing them but I'm not going to read that off on this episode it's it's just a lot and a lot of them never even appear again so we are going to drop this into the show notes for you and I can guarantee you'll get it because I've already typed it
1: all up for you one of the weird reinterpretations was on the start of the ascension conflict where they talk about no one noticed the destruction of mistridge for 230 years they're like yeah it was a minor shantry and the hermetics were already dealing with the albigensian crusade and the Massasa war so they were probably like eh we lost (laughs) we lost one who cares until doizotep was attacked later and they're like wait a second this reminds me of this thing i wasn't alive for And the thing that was notable, though, was that the attack on Duizetep in 1443 was done in the open. It wasn't done under the cover of something else, and you're like, oh. Another thing this book does is they're like, we've always presented hermetics as assholes. We're going to back it up with how cool they are. And uh, the indication they give here is during the second mistridge get-together, the technocracy, the nascent Order of Reason, attacked, but the Order of Hermes had summoned nine dragons. And you're like, okay, okay, yeah, that I would, I-, <laughs> I would let them stand first in line for the buffet when the council is being formed. After they summoned nine dragons and prevented all of us from dying, it mentions that the eighth and ninth seats when the council was forming were auctioned off, and that there was a concern that the. Council was too European from the get-go. Like they mentioned how the Solificati were barely the size of a hermetic house, yet they got a seat all to themselves. And how when the council is like, let's just have all the dream speakers and all the people that do schematic magic be together. And a bunch of groups were like, nope. We're going to peace. It also mentions how Aboriginal magic was kind of split, uh, Australian Aboriginal magic, between the Dream Speakers and the Verbena because they had strong taboos about mixing the magic done by the different genders. The female practitioners joined the Verbena and the male practitioners joined the Dream Speakers for a lot of Aboriginal groups. And I thought that was kind of neat.
0: Uh, this is uh, another good point to come in because uh, we before this book we heard about a faction of african mages that are not in the council of nine that are called the ngoma and uh, this is the first book where we actually get some good information on them we actually learn you know kind of who they are and what they're about so that was cool but also what was interesting and very appropriate for this point in the narrative is at this convocation the ngoma came to the solificati and the order of hermes and said hey we all do high ritual magic let's all get together and make a tradition that's all about high ritual magic i was reading that thinking it makes makes a lot of sense. That could be pretty cool, but the order from me said nah, and that was that.
1: <laughs> yeah, which I mean is period appropriate, but you're like, man. things probably would have worked out better if they're like sure let's all play let's all share each other's toys but then again if uh people worked well together and cooperated it wouldn't be mage anymore we get a few more groups moving the the timeline forward it gives us a huge thing about the magics of mezzo and southern and south america where they're like oh yeah the incas are there and they just joined 19 different groups and you're like oh and it has a big section on voodoo practitioners and the romantics and what happened to the knights templar and it does my favorite thing that mage does periodically where where it's like, yeah, the Knights Templar were never actually destroyed. It was entirely a fake out that they engineered. And I'm like, yes, give me more information about this. Please, thank you. Buried in here is they talk about how during the Victorian age, the technocrats wound up pitting social order against social progress, that the Electrodyne engineers who eventually became the Society of Ether were the strongest advocates for advancement and became known as the Utopians at some point in time. It talks about the incident of Vargo, where you had this etheric archmage backfired And that due to Paradox, that some of his activity was wiped from history. And they even specifically mention the NWO wants you to think that they erased him from history. But in actuality, it was the very nature of the Paradox backlash. And I love that idea. And darn it, give me rules for it.
0: Yeah. And uh, at this point, um, what I would really like to do is have a great big poster made showing like a dirigible kind of blimp. And then then have big letters at the bottom (laughs) saying... Vargo really did it. And then I would like put that up on my office wall. And then anybody who came to visit me and said, Mage, I'd say, okay, you're my friend.
1: My second favorite aside in the book is just where they're like, oh, by the way, we're going to list pulp heroes from every tradition. And you're like, oh man, I want this book (laughs) more than anything else. And you're like, Sarah, the two-fisted witch. And then like, Jimmy, the two-fisted assassin. And then Monica, the two-fisted scientist. I'm like- There's a theme here, and I like that theme, Um, (laughs) and recast the withdrawing of Nefandi forces from Europe, not in terms of them losing power, which I think is a useful retcon, because in 2nd edition, we get the batshit crazy theory that all the Nefandi are just empowered by the dreams of the Neverborn, and that when they wake up, they lose access to magic and then replaced it with the idea that Nefandi really thought that there was going to be extended carnage in the Pacific as it goes from an air war to a ground war. And they talk about the millions of war casualties expected by that. So they had relocated only to have that source of power cut out from under them by the detonation of the two atomic devices. We lose a batshit crazy theory, and we gain something that is much more reasonable. And I think it's interesting because sometime in Mage we're like, that makes too much sense. And other times we're like, that doesn't make enough sense. And we're never happy. And that's the other thing that makes us Mage fans. Um, Moving on into the atomic... Age, it kind of mentions the idea that the first virtual adepts may have been sleepers. Like, it talks about the group of scientists that kind of collected around technological devices, and it doesn't really tie them necessarily to a mage group specifically. We get the idea that the difference engineers became the analytical reckoners, became the virtual adepts. Hopefully, we get information about that whenever Victorian mage comes out. It talks about how Kennedy may have been killed by mages, and it's like, Kennedy wasn't killed by mages. Here are the mages that killed Kennedy. In the 40s and 50s, it talked about how uh, the technocracy was really on the move. The traditions fired back, egged on by the archmages. And this extends one of the themes of Revised of what the lower level mages are doing is just kind of dealing with what their higher ups tell them. It talks about uh, Baba Yaga and the mages of Russia, the Bogatiri, who fought against Baba Yaga's incredibly powerful mystical band that prevented mages and other night folk from entering or leaving russia and this is a, a big thing in vampire and to a lesser extent in werewolf and this is kind of the first mention of it formally we get in mage we get the idea that the war in concordia uh, was a rebellion was younger mages saying hey we're tired of dealing with the dictates of the council and they talk about the mechanics that were used to cover up the week of nightmares um, it gives a brief overview of some current events. Uh, the Child's Crusade, this is something that we've gotten in previous books, which is not quite formally stated at, here as the attack on the seventh generation group of black spiral dancers within Werewolf that attempt to create banes and so on. Um, but this group that has the tacit approval of the technocracy of wiping out people uh, who do institutionalized child abuse. We get Project Storm Warden, which is trying to reestablish contact with Horizon, figure out how the storm works, and deal with the Injured. It also makes mention that everyone has figured out devices that help them cross. Again, we don't get systems for it, which is kind of bothersome. And they also mention that the Utopians are on the rise within the technocracy. These are the factions that want to create a better tomorrow at the cost, maybe, of an order society. And it mentions maybe this becomes a third group in the Ascension War. Who knows?
0: There were a lot of interesting things here in chapter three. Uh, first off, the the sarcastic tone of the main narrative was a little off-putting for me, but I understand that some fans really enjoy that, so I, I shouldn't uh, come down on that too hard. The web of faith is uh, rewritten here. In Book of Shadows, we get the first web of faith, which was started by the Ali Batin, and it was seemed to be largely a secular kind of a a, a thing. Uh, here it says that the web of faith is is very Islamic in in nature and foundation. Of course, in Mummy the Resurrection, we get a web of faith that gets its power from the fact that so many different religions and faiths equally contribute to it. So there's, there's many different ways that a storyteller can work with the web of faith. I mean, personally, in my own chronicles, I have giant umbral spiders running the whole show, and you have to have faith in the spider gods. But, you know, there's just different spins you can put on it. Page 109 in the main narrative, not in a sidebar. The um, older council mage who is, is giving this narrative st- takes a stand for the Celestial Chorus, which was, was interesting. It's it's also quite rare in uh, in mage books. He talks about how all you guys are saying bad stuff about the Celestial Chorus when actually they weren't even doing all this bad stuff. They were um, on the receiving end of the punishment just as much as anybody, and you guys should just, like, stop it. And I was like, well, oh, okay, that's... that's um, That's rare. There are sidebars on pages 132 and 133. I believe this is in the Tsar Vargo part uh, before World War II. It's basically they're attacking conspiracies and trying to make things more believable. You shouldn't chalk things up to conspiracy so much. I I, I can see that, but at the same time, in the process of doing this, they're basically taking an axe to the root of the whole world of darkness, which is built on grand conspiracies and conspiracies within conspiracies. That was the whole concept for the five-game World of Darkness. So it kind of deflates the drama and the mystery uh, for some of us. But for other people, they really do want that, that uh, greater plausibility, that greater believability to work with. And so reducing the conspiracies for them is, is a logical step. So Towards the end of the chapter, it's talking about the technocracy. And it says that the pogrom that we hear about so much in the first two editions of Mage, where the technocracy is hunting down all non-technocracy mages and either capturing them or killing them. Uh, This chapter says that that was a one-time overreaction to current events, and it was no policy or goal of the technocracy. And so that was a very different take on the technocracy that we've been uh, reading about in the books uh, for all the editions of Mage that came before this. So that was certainly worth a mention.
1: Chapter four is entitled Pathways, And again, this is a chapter that focuses kind of on how the different traditions view the world or can view the world. We get a opening section on the nature of global ascension, and this kind of tipped a bunch of mage history on its head and suggests that all the traditions have been fighting for global ascension versus individual ascension for at least a while. And it mentions that this won't happen because the groups often confuse the goal with the methods. The next section we get is called Positions, and it goes over the questions of what are the social structures, positions, and interactions that occur within the traditions. It gives us a chart of of cabal, shantry, and tradition, and council-level operational information. And this is also uh, one of the chapters in the book where the breakdown occurs between in-character and out-of-character voice. Normally, uh, there is a font that is used to suggest that something is in-world versus omniscient narrator versus in world but talking to the players and those start to blur together which made this hard for me to keep track of in some cases it mentions the idea that the disciple adept and master can be mapped onto stages of the life that a disciple is like someone who is between the ages of seven and 15 and adept is between 15 and 25 and a master is 25 or older and as someone who's about to turn 37 i'm like i am not a 12 year master it mentions that the euthanatoi and the chorus are heavily politically involved and that felt new to me like when i think euthanatos i don't think heavy involvement especially after the fall of house of helicar where it kind of mentions that Senex kind of gathers everyone around on kerberus uh it also mentions that the akashics are highly politically capable and i'm like Okay, so that was, <laughs>
0: sure. That news to me. Yeah,
1: some politics is going to be required to advance more as you go up and the stakes tend to increase. It then goes through the protocols in a fair amount of detail and gives you an idea of whether or not they are actually observed. The protocols are the, the founding principles of the traditions, uh, respect those of greater knowledge, a tutor's debt must be repaid, a mage's word is his honor, break not a sworn vow, the will of an oracle must be obeyed, betray not your cabal or shantry, conspire not with the enemies of a Protect the sleepers, they are ignorant of what they do. Be subtle in your arts, lest sleepers know you for who you are. And it does note, though, that people don't drop all of their contacts when they awaken, and that a lot of mage games tend to forget that. There will be elements of their previous life to include. Again, Bitter Road went through that in great detail. And it mentions that vulgar magic threatens everyone in the area, not just you. Uh, That if you bring down paradox or cause the technocracy to respond, you may be dealing with people who are well beyond yourself. It mentions that heralds are big as representatives of the council, which is something we never really get got much information on at least that I don't recall and then it goes through the systems of justice that exist within the traditions. Again, this is something that is in every core rulebook, at least in a paragraph or two, and it goes over censure, branding, imprisonment, uh, ostracism, death, and Gilgul. Uh, The first two and the last are kind of notable. Censure is some sort of limitation of what you're allowed to do. Branding, you are marked with your offenses and is used for people who commit minor infractions a lot. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there is Gilgul, where your avatar is destroyed. And it introduces a term that I don't remember having seen before, that the people who perform Gilgul are known as soul. It notes that different groups are going to view justice differently, that the cultists view any restriction of personal freedom as harsh. Uh, it mentions that justice in the world of darkness isn't always fair and partial, but it is not always corrupt. It makes a weird comment that justice is often aided by magic, but that magic can be falsified. And then it has an aside to the aside that says, no, you can make it in your game so that magic kind of clarifies these things real quick. And that way you don't have to deal with tradition cops. Uh, it brings back the role of Kurdamain as an acceptable form of dispute resolution, except when it is fought to the death, and that mages often kill people who get in their way. The last thing we get are a few sections on structure and influence, where it goes over in more detail, kind of what the difference is between an acolyte, ally, contact, and influences, and how that works. And it provides some useful guidance here. Uh, contacts tend to provide information. Influence tends to be useful but hard to maintain uh, because you wanna keep your cover as being not a mage while you're doing that allies are generally capable and may call on you and acolytes are kind of extensions of the mage who may have vague ideas of what the magic is and can help you uh, get things and then that's the end of the chapter
0: I thought it was odd that uh, the writers uh, for Revised Edition did not develop new titles for mages to uh, denote their learning. Uh, For example, in the previous uh, editions of Mage, we had an adept is a person who has reached level 4 in in one or more spheres, and a master is someone who has reached level 5 in one or more spheres. He actually said in the first edition core book that the the fact that there's titles for these and no other titles shows you how mages are kind of narrowly focused when it comes to achievements. But by Revised Edition, it, it really seems like the time has come to give us new titles for someone who has more practical knowledge or practical experience or especially for someone who has broader learning and in this chapter just seemed like the place to put those those new uh, titles or, or terms of, of learning in there and so I was just Uh, The Protocols of the Council of Nine. This is the first time these are clearly stated, and although all these ideas are to be found in earlier mage books, it's really nice that they spelled it all out here and put it all in one place. My only complaint is, they say, conspire not with the enemies of Ascension. That's really vague. Mages are always disagreeing about what Ascension even means in the first place. If you just said conspire not with enemies of the council, that's clear, makes sense, everybody gets it. Page one, nine, 169 has a fiction example of um, a uh, order of Hermes Mage uh, standing before the justices and being accused of his crime it is really hard to get that many justices together in one place when when something's going on, especially as minor as the infraction was in this case. Back in the day, on Anders' Mage Page, uh, Anders himself was making the same kind of comment about Kurtiman. He said, look, you've got to have a lot of really talented mages together in one place to have a Kurdiman match. I don't know if I really
1: think this is all that believable. Chapter 5 is entitled The Traditions, and it tries to explain why the traditions exist, what they offer to each other, and their role in the council. And this is a really neat framework where they talk about like the the Akashiana or the voice of the traditions and the chorus is the vision and the cult is the drive and the dream speakers are the soul and the euthanatoi are the conscious and the hermetics and this is where it starts breaking down they're like the hermetics are the skeleton of the traditions and i'm like oh okay <laughs> and it's like the sons of ether are the insight into the technocracy and the virtual adepts are the infrastructure and they're have a lot of sleepers i'm like wow That extended metaphor really fell off the rails towards the end. Yep. Also, a lot of the associations they make are not associations that I make. Where they're like, the chorus provides the vision. I'm like, ah, the chorus is very squabbly in my games. And the, the Akashian are very removed. So like to call them the voice, and, and this is fine because, again, this is just presenting another view. But this is one of the glorious cases where it's really hard to get the arrows of the game all pointing in the same direction. I do like that they're like the virtual attempts are called on to provide like IT services. But it doesn't <laughs> mention that it's specifically technological so i picture a dream speaker and a verbena trying to communicate through like spirits of wind and them still calling in a virtual adept to fix it and just being like completely paradigm agnostic like no matter what it is if it involves communication a va could fix it and that's that's what i i just want a virtual adept going around going there's your problem
0: yeah i agree with you on this section the the author
1: made a lot of these insights i was like wait a minute where's this coming from One way I had of taking it was that what a tradition is like overall and how the members that are active in the council act may be different. So it could be the case that the Akashiana on the whole maybe don't care too much about what the council is doing, but those who are active in the council take on the role of giving voice to... Uh, what is happening around the world. And that just may be a side effect of being huge and widespread. That that was one of the ways I had of doing it. We get this interesting section on traditions mixing. And to go back to what Adam said, this was kind of really the bringing back of an old idea that traditions and ideas rub against each other and create new ideas. It talks about how this could be caused due to location, having a common goal and having a common method. In addition to that, it adds a few other methods. One is the idea of religious identity, which is to say that a hermetic Christian and a chorister... Christian may work together because they share a faith. And that to me makes sense. This is something that we get in the history section a lot that various cultural and historical and religious movements will create these groups within and between traditions that kind of tie them together. And one of the things this book really does is say, yeah, you've got the tradition on one axis, but you can add another group that ties you to other mages on a different axis. And that could be a hobby or using common methods or that you're in the same geographic location. And I like that next part of this section is called factionalism. And it gives a whole bunch of cross tradition factions.
0: A lot of this chapter was in a very difficult typeface. (laughs) I guess that was supposed to show that it was in character, which, yeah, okay, that's cool. But this typeface made me read really, really slowly because a lot of the letters were really funky and it just Mm. was not my favorite. We, we, In character, I'm fine, okay. But could we please use a different typeface?
1: There were parts where it looked like a ransom note, where it's like, my computer has 60 fonts, I am going to use all of them. (laughs) you're like, someone just got word 2000.
0: With the uh, cross-tradition factions, these are groups with members from more than one tradition that mix their beliefs and styles so that they can focus on a goal. So we have a number of these. We have Clan Impossible, a group of acquaintances who enjoyed the club scene and gave their mentors a hard time becoming a dedicated group after the Avatar Storm separated them from their mentors. And a technocracy attack killed some of their friends. They began cross-training, recruiting, and making strikes to the technocracy. Cabals are four members, with all additional members being students. The Neo-Tradition Reformation Front. Boy, that sounds official. A group that believes the Council of Nine's main failure is their inflexible definition. They openly support cross-tradition training. Members choose two tradition names, put them together, and state that is their group. Their long-term goals are to completely break down the nine-tradition structure in favor of something more open and flexible. They currently obey all council rules, but in the future, who knows? Geographic Liberation Movement, a group that has no open members, but is distributing flyers that claim mages should group according to regions on the map instead of the current traditions. They make bold claims that this will strengthen the council, but have not been able to provide much proof so far. The Charleston Private Academy. After the Avatar Storm, a master of the traditions was separated from his five students. Other tradition mages resumed the students' education and expanded to 13. The school recruits hollow ones, disparates, and newly awakened students. Disciples of the tradition can also study there if they agree to help the school. Rather than training the students for specific traditions, the lessons are tailored to the students' individual talents. New paradigms are even allowed to develop. Yes, this is a not-so-subtle reference to Charles Xavier and Magneto in Marvel Comics' X-Men comic books. Next up, the Matthias Brotherhood, a group of mages formed a compound where modern conveniences are absent. They train students as well as each other in magic that turns away from modern technology. Slayer Proposal. It sounds like an anime title to me for some reason. Uh, Several young mages from House Titulus in the Order of Hermes started this group to direct warrior mages against vampires and other monsters that threaten humanity. They sometimes disagree about which monsters are the greatest threat, which can lead to alliances with non-mages that can upset other slayers. Next, we have the Yari Magica, a group of technology-savvy mages who talk on a server on the mundane internet. A small group of members from many traditions, as well as spirits and hollow ones. So far, technocracy intrusion has not been a problem. Over time, this group developed a number of strong friendships. They use normal sleeper technology, as they believe anything more advanced would bring trouble. Uh, Followers of Vaudon and uh, similar faiths who wish to be recognized as a new tradition. Uh, we have the United Traditions Organization, supporters of the Cross Tradition Ambassador Program mentioned in Horizon Stronghold of Hope, have created this group to uh, be dedicated to inter- tradition diplomacy and cooperation. This group works so hard to m- retain peace between traditions that some wonder if they may someday resort to force. Uh, last off, we have Sim Ascension. Yes, this is a joke on an old video game. A young virtual adept created a software simulation of a single will worker's decisions on the path to enlightenment. Other virtual adepts, along with members from three other traditions, joined the project, which has become quite sophisticated. It is rumored 20 years of decisions can be modeled in a matter of hours. Will this project prove to be a turning
1: point for the traditions, or an elaborate trap by their enemies? So chapter six is entitled character building, and we get things like new abilities to make your other ones less useful, new backgrounds to complicate building a character, adversarial backgrounds as a way of complicating things for your group and giving you more freebie points and merits and flaws. Terry, if there's only some way to to bring out your own thoughts on these topics. I liked precisely half of it. Like, I felt like the entire time I'm like, uh, 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 but like, for instance, we get empathy. And you're like, okay, this is like Sutterfuge, but crappy. That's good to know. And then we get High Ritual, which is like its own little subsystem. And it also mentions that the maximum number of successes you can have on a ritual is your Rite times your willpower, which I don't recall seeing before, but that's good to know is a thing. It gives you blessing, which is basically this background where it's like, do you want access to a bunch of magic but weirdly and with the storyteller's permission but without paradox, but with strange restrictions that you may not know about ahead of time? We have the background for you. <laughs> and then we have domain, which is introduced where it's like, you have a place inside of your head that you can go when things are troubled. It's like Cheers, but inside of your mind. you're like, what does it provide me mechanically? Stop asking questions. And you're like, okay. And then it gives you Legend, where it's like, quintessence is really hard, but what if you really look like Robin Hood or James Dean? Would that make it easier? No, it wouldn't. Well, with Legend, guess what it does? And then every once in a while, you're like, you can't give other people quintessence, but you can invest objects with your legend. And other people could use it as tasks when doing appropriate things. If I have the legend of Little Red Riding Hood and someone else needs tasks, I can take a pie or an axe and turn that into quintessence to give to other people when killing fairies. And you're like... And won't they be surprised? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and it also gives us systems for past lives, which is just ridiculous. They're like, What's per section, just take a bunch of dice. What could possibly go wrong? And they are like, oh yeah, this could totally help with magic, but write it down so you can use that bonus again later where it's like bookkeeping, but to screw your storyteller. And then we get adversarial backgrounds. I like them because they give you story hooks, but some of them are just stupid. And the idea behind an adversarial background is normally a background represents a uh, a contact or tie or attribute of the world that a character can call on that is generally external to themselves or at least not due to something they did in general that they can call upon. For instance, uh, you may have a mentor that you can call upon for guidance or aid or something. And the adversarial background to that is an apprentice. You have a person that you're instructing that chews up time and resources and so on. And some of these are just kind of like Dumb. Yes, I'll take five dots in debt and use that to buy a second dot in matter so I can literally manufacture gold. So again, these are things that are subject to storyteller fiat and so on. Some of them I just think are amazing, like uh, skeptics. Like the idea that your mage has a whole bunch of mortals that follow him around and go, well, actually, that's not the effect that you just did. Or something like that. Like, I'm skeptical of your plasma plasma cannon or something like that. Yeah, you get to replace skeptics with a dot of Jor when you just kill them because they're annoying. <laughs> and then in the merits and flaws section, uh, we get a bunch of flavorful merits and flaws. But one that was super weird to me was personal talisman which really complicated the willpower rules for items for me. Like, I thought when you created a wonder and you invested a point of willpower, you lost that point of wonder until you destroyed it. But here it's like, hey, you get an additional point of willpower as long as you have that item, but you don't get it as a point of temporary willpower. And in Mage, like... That's amazing that for one point you just get another point of willpower, although at character creation they only cost one point, so you may as well take it anyway. But like it's super weird that like if you've invested it in the object, you still have it as a point of permanent willpower if it's on you but if it's not, which suggests that my ability to resist mental intrusion varies depending on whether or not my magical sword is around. Okay, that's a way of interpreting things, and I have made a lot of snarky comments so far on this section. (laughs) Adam, can you redeem my asshat commentary? Uh, (laughs) Terry, I don't don't know if I'm a match
0: for you, but I do have some of my own observations on chapter six. (laughs) The two skills were empathy and high ritual, and uh, yeah, I agree with you. Empathy, I, I just don't see how it's all that valuable or it brings much to the game. High ritual, I think, was, was kind of cool, actually, but you just have to be really, really clear to your players when they're thinking about it that this involves when your mage is directing a ritual that has extra people in it. Mm-hmm. Just make it really clear to your players: this is not something you use when you are by yourself or when you're surrounded by people who aren't actively helping you and taking your directions. As long as that's clear, uh, this this could be kind of a fun addition to some games. That is, if the game focuses on on high ritual and how it's different from other kinds of magic. Otherwise, yeah, it's it's just uh, extra complication. The simpler chantry system introduced in this chapter was it was good. I, I think it's I think it, it's useful, and you and a person can run with it. And I, I agree with Terry. It is a bit odd to add it this late in in revised edition, but you know it's there. I kind of missed the full build system from first edition uh, Book of Chantries, but um, if if you're not you know that heavily invested in Chantries and revised edition isn't, then I think this this system is is workable.
1: Speaking about the Chantry build system, we will get an update to that in the companion book for Technocracy Reloaded. So after 29 years. We will get an update to the Shantry built system. Which I, is a virtue, but fine. Exactly. Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I just want to. Well, um,
0: I usually don't talk a lot about the uh, art in the books. Um, you know, a lot of it's, it's really good. They hired a lot of talented artists, but usually the, that isn't what uh, you know, grabs my attention so strongly. But, you know, there was an illustration um, in the section on new backgrounds for cult. When uh, this is a new background where your mage can have a cult of followers that are totally dedicated to your mage and, and really believe whatever he's laying down and, and or just jump to do whatever he says. There's an illustration of a rather skinny, geeky, bald guy with glasses and he's got these kind of you know uncool robes on and he's surrounded by six young, attractive... nude? women who are all hanging on his every word and hanging on him physically as well. And so I saw this uh, illustration, and I thought, well, in an intelligent, nuanced book such as this, there's no way we're going to have any elements of teenage wish fulfillment. So this must be something deeply symbolic. So, Terry, what does this deeply symbolize? This
1: deeply symbolizes a guy going, I deserve this. (laughs) (laughs) And there you go. Yep. Yep. There was a new background called Domain,
0: which, uh, as Terry said, is is a place in your head. Yeah, I actually kind of liked this, so. Um it, it's basically establishing that the character has a connection to a sort of dream realm now this can, of course can be interpreted in different ways uh there's one mage book that says the dream realms are just dreams that regular mortals are having and you can jump between them the first edition of mage had the dream realms which really had nothing to do with changelings and then of course you have changeling the dreaming which has a a sort of separate supernatural space called the dreaming and it doesn't map easily to the layers of the umbra that we usually talk about but anyways domain is a background that lets a mage create their own space in the dreaming that does not exist in the regular umbra or on the physical world and i thought this was was very interesting but uh this was very, it's kind of far out and, and quite different from what we're used to seeing for backgrounds in the game of Mage. And so, to add it this late in the game, it's not surprising to me that a lot of Mage uh, storytellers don't don't make this a part of their game. But it, it was very interesting. And of course, and you know, if you're looking for uh, changeling crossovers, then this background is a really great way to get the ball rolling. I thought it was interesting that this chapter really upped the level of uh, more magical, mystical, you know, way out sorts of elements you can add to a game of mage. And so in that sense, it doesn't seem to fit in as well with a lot of the um, revised edition mage books we have so far. But I, I thought it was kind of fun that you can get some of those you know way out fantastical elements from the first two edition of mages and here's a way to bring them into revised if you would like to do that i I like opening that up as an option but i i understand that a lot of revised edition fans look at this and say yeah this is not actually what i'm looking for As for adversarial backgrounds, I agree with Terry. There were a lot that just really didn't work for me. And uh, they even suggest, hey, why don't you take resources too and then take anti-resources too for the rich role-playing? I'm like, no, I I don't think I need that. I, I think flaws are enough. I think flaws are are quite enough to give the mechanical boost that some players want and to give some neat elements for role-playing. I thought adversarial backgrounds and keeping track of them and, and noting how they affect regular backgrounds, it's just not something that... I really need to get into as a storyteller and uh, last the merits and flaws these were more way out merits and flaws which I you know some revised edition players are gonna look at these and say no this is not what I'm trying to have in my game but as a person who remembers the first two editions I I thought it was fun to be able to bring some of this way out magical stuff into revised edition uh, for those who would like to work with that and a book about the nine mystic traditions is probably you know as good as any book uh, to be the place where this gets dropped
1: I got the feeling that with the additional merits and flaws and backgrounds, they were trying to make magic weirder where they're like yeah. and, and fulfill more cultural touchstones. And just what I think, though, of the adversarial background of Uncanny, I just picture of a character always wearing like a clown costume and people just mm-hmm. being like, why won't you ever take the clown costume off? It's like, it's part of who I am. <laughs> like <laughs> <and> <laughs> other Things like that. You just don't understand. Me. Exactly. I come from a loud line of distinguished clowns. The penultimate chapter is chapter seven and is entitled storytelling and gives a lot of remarkably obvious advice where it's like, talk to players, make sure their characters will fit into your story, which like to transport myself back to 2001 was useful advice. If you're running uh, the cave of spiders or some other classic D&D adventure, um, once you kind of have the roles fulfilled, like there's not a lot of rich role-playing necessarily that you need to make sure that everyone's on the same page. Like we're doing the Tomb of Horrors. We all know what that means. Where Mage is a little bit uh, more complicated than that. But in the intervening 20 years, we've developed new technologies to communicate that. The idea of a session zero to make sure everyone is on the same page has kind of become table stakes. It reiterates the view that an RPG is like a novel. And I agree with what Adam has said before. RPGs are not novels. In fact, you could say that RPGs are RPGs. And if you want a novel-like experience, go read a novel. Um, there, There are some useful bits where it says, try and figure out how you can establish a theme, mood, and atmosphere, and how you can allow those to carry forward. It also talks about some storytelling challenges that you may encounter, as well as the fact that the... Chronicle that goes forever may not be the default that you want to do, that you may have a story in mind that is shorter and you tell players that and you build characters towards that end. The idea of a limited run game was neither a one-shot nor we're going to do this every Friday for two years uh, was something that didn't take up as much of the gaming landscape as maybe it does now where you have a lot of games who are like, this game is intended to run for five to ten sessions. So, talks about uh how to storytell paradox it reinforces some of these ideas of like adversarial storytelling where they're like yeah you could have this really cool paradox realm in mind and you're just waiting for the characters to unleash paradox i'm like then you're kind of like trapping the players also like do the math on on paradox on the flip side it also talks through what the role of the different uh factions in mage are narratively and it talks about how marauders are a way of saying this is what an excess of dynamism Truly looks like. And then the last thing it introduces is, is the idea of seasonal play, which is a way of saying if your character is doing nothing but this one thing for three months, here is a system that you can build experience points towards something. And this is a system that doesn't really make sense. One, it is highly abusable if you are just have a very potent avatar or have access to a really big library. It also suggests that one-on-one tutoring is less effective than many other ways of advancing arcane knowledge, which to me seems questionable. The other thing is you assemble a dice pool and then you roll against difficulty seven, eight, or nine, depending on what combination you're using. And if you just kind of run through the numbers on that, that suggests that three months of studying will give you like three experience points, kind of on average, which suggests that if you want to advance to a third dot and you have one-on-one tutoring, that it's going to take you three years if you have intelligence plus mentor of eight in total. And that just doesn't make sense to me. It really feels like somebody saw Ars Magica and is like, hey, that's an idea that we can make suck.
0: I didn't agree with putting general Mage the Ascension Storyteller advice in this book. I mean, this book says this is focused on the Council of Nine Mystic Traditions, And then to turn to the storytelling section, and you're you're really, you have a reasonable expectation this is going to be specifically focused on how to storytell tradition characters. And says, let's talk about all of Mage. I'm not sure I'm down with that, especially since uh, four or five books ahead in the lineup, we have a thick hardcover book, The Storyteller's Handbook. So yeah, that's the place for it. I like the idea that, A character concept can be a goal rather than a starting point. I I think that's actually quite helpful. Some player comes to the table saying, I want a guy who can do this and knows all about this. And it's like, hey, let's work towards that instead of starting there. It recommends an hour with each player for a one-on-one session zero before the story starts. That can be fun. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think that's a goal that everyone should shoot for. I really liked the idea on storytelling paradox. Uh, basically, roll for paradox behind the screen, or you know, where your players don't know what you're rolling for, and then let the players believe. That there's some enemy, some outflight, outside influence that's interfering with them. And so they're looking for the enemy when, you know, eventually they're going to realize, oh, that was Paradox and it, it got me again. I, I think that could be actually fun. As long as you don't overuse it, then you're going to just frustrate your players. But every once in a while, bringing that in to let them see, wow, the the world of magic is, is really confusing and odd and we have to stay on our toes. I, I think that can be fun. And uh, last, the the study seasons towards the end of the chapter. It's an interesting idea, but uh, get back to me when it's done. Because as is, I'm not going to use this. It's a lot of complications. I don't think it's... uh, Several assumptions are reasonable here. Terry summed it up well. Uh, This is not not finished.
1: Chapter 8 is entitled Treasures, and this chapter is amazing. They're like, you know the way in other books we've given you ideas that they were poorly thought out and didn't really have a lot of fun? Well, guess what? There's a spirit in Death Valley that's been told that it needs to guard these other spirits, but it was lazy and just made them one uber spirit, and it wants you to learn a ritual so you can bind them separately so it can eat them. And I'm like... Yes, please. And it's like, by the way, you may think this is a cool idea. We think it is too. Put it wherever the heck you want. And it just goes through a bunch of those where it's like, oh yeah, there's an area of Pittsburgh that is an urban shallowing that has like dozens of spirits associated with it. Also somewhere there is a corrupt Roman Nefondus who had his avatar stripped from him and then bound to a site and has gone without sleep or rest for over 2000 years. That's going to be fun to run into. And then it's like the Amish. And then it's like, oh, by the way, there are abandoned shantries and Outposts out there somewhere. Wouldn't it be great if your character stumbled upon them and found the riches of the ages after having to deal with traps? And I'm like, revised, you finally did it. A mage the Ascension dungeon crawl. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, and I just think it was really cool that it's like, yeah, the Solificati have figured out a way to, to put Tass into food. Also, there's an abandoned secret government station and there's this shantry frozen in time. I just thought they were great. We got a bunch of wonders and artifacts. We got the Staff of the Heralds, which answers the question of why should you trust someone, which is a high level of entropy effect. That's like, I'm a guy you can trust. Organic knife, which is the, just a snap bracelet of death, which is this lump of plastic that you can mold into a shape and then hit it against an object and it switches back and forth. I'm like, yep, I like that. Is it stupid? Yes. Do I want five of them? Also, yes. We get a bunch of tradition rotes, which are fine. It introduces the idea of a node spike where you can add something to a node that when someone tries to take quintessence from it, something happens. And I feel like this was entirely because in the jargon section, they had spiking as a word where you add something to a node. So something happens when someone takes quintessence from it. So I like that it has the symmetry that like the last page and almost the first page mention node spiking, but I just thought it was a a bunch of cool stuff. Uh, Some of it was boring, but you don't need everything to be a hit.
0: I agree. It was just a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed Chapter 8. Uh, the magic locations is, is always a big thing for me. Sometimes, for some reason, I, I really latch on that more than magic items or magic uh, individuals from the past but i really like death valley and that you know dishonest spirit you mentioned the bosnian node and oyama station Uh, oyama station is like this little island uh, near the coast in in, uh, one of the larger japanese islands and it was a technocracy location but now some virtual adepts and other uh, council mages have kind of captured it and they're holding on to it and the technocracy is having a hard time because it's so visible getting back to it and Again, it's it's kind of like Mage the Ascension Dungeon Crawl, but I just want to say that uh, if you have been paying any attention to the OSR community, dungeon crawls have gotten a lot cooler these days mm-hmm. than they were back in the 1980s, and so mixing a little of that into your mage, you might have some, some good, clean fun there. For the Chantries, I really liked the uh, Belgian Chantry and the Lost House Flambeau Chantry. Basically, there's this university, and they have a library, and people are in it every day. But if you're in the know... You can trick the elevator to take you down to the places where uh, you know the, the floors where the people at the university have no idea it's even there it's a house flambeau chantry it's frozen in time there's all this stuff going on there i just thought wow that that could actually be a really fun gaming session for the wonders um i like the tradition blades is like you know sometime in the 1940s every tradition decided hey we need a symbolic sword or blade to represent us for ceremonial use but let's give it some some power so that it actually means something and I thought it was neat because every one of these blades is it's um, powerful enough to be interesting but it's not so powerful that every mage you know who's a mage is going to uh, kill every other mage to get hold of it and so is i think they hit the sweet uh, the sweet spot on how powerful uh, these blades are to make them, them quite interesting and each one has character and also the submersible minivan I mean, I I know it sounds silly, but I can see Sons of Ether coming together, getting a minivan and saying, let's turn this into a submarine. We loved that uh, 70s James Bond movie where the car went underwater and then drove up the beach. We're going to make a minivan like that. I say, hey, give it to the players, put them in the Amazon River system. As a storyteller, I could have fun with that. Maybe not everybody, but uh, I I think that could be pretty darn fun. And uh, last off, uh, the rotes that round out the chapter, there was one about, there's one called Node Raider is basically you can plunder a node quickly for quintessence before you run away with everybody, you know, firing arrows and spells at you. I thought it made the assumption that nodes are really quite fragile. I, I, I My nodes are, are a little stronger. Um, it, basically, if somebody grabs 10 points of quintessence from a node, then the level of the node permanently goes down one. I thought that that's a pretty fragile set of nodes there. I'm not sure I would portray them in that way, but, but certainly an interesting idea. So yeah, chapter eight is, is a winner for me.
1: Yeah, and the node math in the game never quite made sense in a lot of cases, but eh, if you wanted a crunchy system that made internal sense, that's what Chronicles of Darkness is for. But us o fans are here until the end. Um, (laughs) uh, What were your thoughts overall on the book?
0: I thought that this and the Guide to the Technocracy are the um, unofficial player's guides Mm -hmm. for revised edition. I I thought that was worth pointing out. It's interesting to me how Book of Shadows was the player's guide for mage for both first and second edition. Guide to the Technocracy is a player's guide for technocracy characters for both second and and revised and if you've a lot of people make uh, council mages and so this is really your player's guide even though it doesn't say that in the title it, it works very well in that capacity for me the basic problem with detailing the Council of Nine and its day-to-day operations is you run the risk of invalidating what storytellers have already come up with in their own chronicles for portraying how the Council of Nine works. And so that's really an unavoidable problem and certainly not a criticism, but it's just something to factor in. There may be some things you see in this book where it's like, well, you know, I've I've got a long-running chronicle and my council's working differently here. So yeah, you might need to massage that a bit, but I think it's really fun to lay that out. I was surprised by how This book really emphasized how antagonistic the traditions are against each other. And I guess some people are, are really going to want to use that in their uh, chronicles. I, I uh, have to agree that's a, a rich source of a lot of plot hooks and story ideas, certainly. Yeah, the, the first two editions of Mage kind of portrayed this uh, more friendly, more open atmosphere. And so that, that kind of s- stood out to me as, as something certainly worth mentioning as we walk through the books of Mage and see how things change over time.
1: That struck me too. And my thought is, the more antagonistic the good guys are, the less powerful the bad guy has to be yeah so in the previous editions where it was all nine traditions working together pulling in the same direction the technocracy needs to be omnipresent and omni capable to stop them but if you want something where the technocracy is no longer the secret cabal that's running the world then the question becomes so why haven't the traditions won oh internal politics especially the idea that the traditions are a bunch of hidebound traditionalists and your characters are fighting against that was a direction that we haven't really seen mage move before
0: yeah so those are some slider bars to keep in mind as you're a storyteller setting up your own chronicle and that's one of the reasons we're doing tomes of magic is to let you know what those slider bars are so that when you sit down to write a chronicle it's like okay these are the things i've, I've got in my head i gotta work out i was thinking one of the general benefits of having your mage faction a part of the council of nine is guarantees and oversight and what i buy what i mean by that is i'll use an example um terry has said in past episodes how the mind sphere in Mage the Ascension, has a lot of interesting repercussions. Uh, there's someone who can make you be a different person and like it, and you don't even know it until you're like 60 years old, and you're sitting one day looking out over the like thinking, wait a minute, darn it! <laughs> so, yeah, that that's something you, you really need to factor in. And when you have a larger council of nine uh, sort of leadership system in place, one of the benefits is... Uh, You can have rules, for example, you can have a stated rule, if a mentor knows the mind sphere, then it is required that they teach their student at least level one in the mind Mm -hmm. sphere and teach them, um, have you figured out how to tell if someone's messing with your mind. Oh, I like like, that. This is like a council of nine mind rule. doesn't matter what tradition you're in, you've got to follow this rule. Another is they have basically uh, supervisors or or lectors or whatever, people who go out and they observe uh, chantries and even uh, lone mentors who who just have one or two students living with them out in some remote location it's like look once or twice a year we're gonna have the council guy he's gonna come and visit and he's gonna check this out it's like okay is there any brainwashing going on around here okay i'm, I'm gonna check your students minds are you messing with the student's mind if it is I'm, I'm gonna go home and tell everybody and if you kill me everybody knows i came here and somebody else is gonna come around and he's gonna be loaded for bear so, you know, we have this system in place where we are making sure that our members, our, our new recruits, our fresh blood, is not getting their minds twisted around by clever mentors who think, hey, I live way out in the country. Nobody's checking up on me. It's like, oh, yeah. This is one of the benefits you have of being a council mage as opposed to being a, a member of the Disparates or, or an orphan or something. You get magic. So, yeah, Russia. membership. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just just some, some stuff like this. And I didn't see a lot of this in the book, but I, I thought... It was worth mentioning. I thought it was interesting how on page 78 they make it clear that the Avatar storm started just a few months ago. They don't say how many months, but, you know, they say a few months ago. And so it's like, okay, this this gives us a little bit of grounding. Uh, Terry and I discussed in the past how if the Avatar storm really shook things up so greatly, then over time... The structure of mage society, the five conventions, the nine traditions, it would it would change. There would be whole new traditions. Um, there would be old traditions or conventions that would just crumble or merge together in a, a heavy-duty merger with a new name or something. It's like, why haven't we seen this? Well, it, because the Avatar Storm only started a few months ago. That's why we haven't seen this. Like, yeah, thanks. That, that actually makes sense. That helps me put my finger on, uh, on the time scale here. So I appreciate that. Last off, I have something in my chronicles that I thought was was interesting enough to mention, and that was associate status. This is basically where the Council of Nine leadership has an official um, status that they call associate, and that is a mage who is a disparate or an orphan and they have a friendly relationship going on with a cabal of tradition mages or a chantry that is part of the, of the nine traditions. And so the Council of Nine says, hey, we recognize you as someone who was not one of us, but you're friendly, got a number of reports of you over time, and we have a, a, a sense of who you are. You're, you're a friend, you're a possible ally, and so we're going to give you some um, access to some of our resources, and that's to encourage friendship. And why? There's one reason why recruiting. You take these uh, disparates and these orphans and say, "Hey, you know what? I, the Council of 9's been nice to me. They let me use some of their stuff. They didn't force me to join. You know, maybe one of those traditions looks looks good to me. Maybe I want full access, you know. I've got partial access and I've been liking that and nobody's been, you know, treating me bad. So if I, you know, all these things they won't let me have, all I have to do is join one of these traditions to get it. They've been kind of nice to me. Maybe I'll do that. And so associate status is a way for the Council of 9 to bring in new mages for recruiting. So I I thought that was kind of a cool idea. And when you have a coherent leadership structure like the Council of Nine, you can do things like that. You're one of our pals, even though you're not one of us. And you know what? You're gonna like us so much.
1: You're gonna want to join, and then we get a new mage for an extra 19.99. You get to go from Council of the Nine Traditions Premium to Council of the Nine Traditions Pro, which gives 24/7 <laughs> tech support. Yeah, <laughs> and, <laughs> there you go. And it even mentions in the book it used to be the thing where there was this protracted thing of well, you need to find someone that'll teach you the magic that you want, and they say here that the tech, the goal is to get to people before the technocracy does. So you'll have people instructing people in maybe something that isn't their paradigm, which I thought was kind of an interesting idea. Just like Adam said, this reminds me of the Book of Shadows for its mix of in-character fiction and alternate systems, but also the Book of Mirrors because it has a bunch of alternative history in it. I really wish this were just a pure player's guide, that they kind of strip that other stuff out and put that elsewhere, and this was just a book I could hand to a player and be like, this is the tradition-y part of Mage, where I could Give them the revised core and this, and that gave them pretty well everything. And if they really wanted to dive into a tradition, I could give them a tradition book. The fact that there are so many darn factions, uh, that there are so many sects, implicitly to me increases the number of mages in the world. This gives me the idea that there are now na- that there are a lot of mages out there that are of relatively low power, but they're not sure what everyone else is doing, and there's a lot of rumors and so on, and there's not very good communication, which fits with revised. That reminds me, this. There, there was wasn't there a rumor in in two thousand one that uh, Jess Heineck had to go
0: on a world tour to recruit hundreds of new mages just to fill all these thirty three new factions.
1: <laughs> and after that, he was so exhausted they had to bring in Bill Bridges as co developer. That actually makes that. that <laughs> But yeah, there's just so many of them out there. It makes it for a a very magical world. Uh, the typography, as Adam mentioned, got confusing. It was both difficult to read fonts and alternative backgrounds. And sometimes the different background was to indicate that something was in-world and in epistolary, and sometimes it was to indicate it was a storyteller note. So I feel like it broke consistency there. Some of the art is simply terrible. Uh, some of it is just pencil illustrations that didn't seem to have gotten much of a a review many of them are elongated making it look like they needed to like stretch a piece to fill a column and they started using the word spell like which is something that we never used in mage it's like i have a spell to do and then i'm gonna do a counter spell i'm like whoa 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 what kind of like there aren't a lot of rules in mage but one of them is we don't use the s word especially <laughs> in front of children so that was just a weird thing but again i i mean that comes on the back of this book doing a lot of new things does it disagree with established canon yes does mage do that all the time? Yes. If someone were to be like, is this book still relevant? My answer is yes. And it's $9.99. Do I think it's worth that for the PDF? Without a doubt. Yeah. And if you use the link in our show notes, we get 5% of that. So that would be a super help. But yeah, my uh, <laughs> the opening fiction had the, the groups that were doing this infiltration and the blind person that was kind of leading the meeting, everyone's squabbling and just the person calmly declares there is a difference between speaking your mind and minding what you speak I encourage all of you to determine the difference between the two and that was just kind of the pithy writing from two uh from revised that I liked but then one one or two pages later the hermetic who is wearing a suit that is almost always wearing robes and that is kind of like a recurring joke in the book says the suit is uncomfortable complained Ignatius you look nice Megan murmured and then Ignatius replies it impedes the circulation of blood to my chest and groin and I just like the simple declarative way in which the hermetic is like this is why we should all be wearing robes. Everything was better in the mythic ages. Stu <laughs> suits are stupid. Well, this episode is uh, thanks to executive
0: producers John Magnuson, Ira Grace, Richard Bat Brewster, Michael Parker, Christopher Phillips, Ilara J sunseren Bryce Perry, William Martin, John Horton, William Connolly. Brandon Morrill Andrew Katz Jenna F Andrew Edelstein Chris Zack Anders and Justin if you would like to become an executive producer for Mage the Podcast it would help us keep bringing you episodes like this one you'd also become a part of our council to discuss upcoming projects the link in the show notes will get you started if you have something to say please contact us at magethepodcast at gmail.com with your questions comments or feedback subscribe to Mage the Podcast on iTunes Google Play TuneIn and other aggregators if you liked this show then others might like it too and if you leave a positive review for Mage the Podcast. It helps us become more visible in other people's searches. You can follow us on Twitter at Mage the Podcast. We're also on the web at MageThePodcast.com, where we have complete show notes prepared for you, and you can also see all the past episodes we have lined up. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Until next time, truth until paradox. Baby. Go start a tradition sub-faction. Bye.